0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Today we look at the troubled and volatile relationship between India and China, two countries accounting for more than one third of the world's population sharing similar histories of colonization, yet very different in terms of political systems and with an unsettled 3,488-kilometer-long border. China claims roughly 90,000 square kilometers of territory in the eastern Himalaya, and India claims around 38,000 square kilometers in the western Himalaya. The two countries fought a war in 1962. India lost some territory there, and since then, there have been occasional local clashes but one, which culminated in June 2020, saw no use of guns, but actual hand-to-hand combat, which left at least 20 Indian soldiers dead. China has formally acknowledged two officers and three soldiers killed in that clash in the Galwan Valley. India's chief of defense staff recently said, China is the biggest security threat for India, much bigger than Pakistan. I have joining me today from Bangalore, Ambassador Nirupama Rao, former Indian foreign secretary And I should add a former ambassador as well to Peru and to China and High Commissioner to Sri Lanka. Thank you, uh, Nirupama, for joining me today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Ambassador Rao's book, Fractured Himalaya on India, Tibet, and China in the period from 49 to 1962, that is a lead up to the 62 war, has only just been released. And joining me from DC is Jeff Smith research fellow at the Asian Studies Center of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, welcome, Jeff.
1: It's Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So Ambassador
0: Rao, um, the book is an excellent read, I must say, so detailed and meticulous, yet so fresh. And there is one, there is one phrase you used, diplomacy may be life without maps, but an understanding of its history enables us to chart new paths and address fault lines. Do you see any sign of the kind of thinking necessary to overcome the disputes and have stability on this border? Or are the two locked in an immutable rivalry? And if there is none, what options does India realistically have?
2: Thank you, Nirma. Let me first hold up the book for your viewers. Uh, This is the book. It's just out. It's not released as yet in the United States. But hopefully, uh, Penguin is working on it. Let's hope something materializes. Well, to answer your question about immutable uh, rivalry between the two countries, uh, I recall uh, the words of uh, John Garver, protracted contest. And I think that explains the situation in the relationship between the two countries. Um, You spoke about, uh, you quoted from my book saying, Diplomacy is life without maps, In another part of the book, I say that uh, stories, I quote, um, you know, the well-known saying, stories cut across maps in many ways, and my story does too. And map lines, as you know, are very complex and convoluted. You referred to the dispute between the two sides and the territorial claims of both India and China when it comes to this Himalayan border that we share so that really is the uh, core of my story, in, in a way, uh, the convoluted situation that exists even till today. And why I focused on the period between 1949 and 1962, it, it, it's something like that biblical thing about the seven days in which the world was formed. In many ways, I think the, uh, the, the contours of the relationship were set at that time, beginning with You know, that heyday of friendship between the two countries, the Hindi, Chini, Bhai Bhai, as you know, Indians and Chinese are brothers, to the uh, revelations that uh, followed the building of the Aksai Chin Highway by the Chinese in eastern Ladakh and India's reaction to that. And even before that, with the signing of the Tibet Agreement between India and China in 1954 and uh, India's giving up uh its rights and privileges in Tibet inherited from the British, but not seeking a simultaneous confirmation of the boundary between the two sides. Because any international boundary, as you're aware, has to be settled on the basis of mutual agreement uh, between uh, the two countries sharing that border. And that did not happen in the case of India and China. And even more uh, complicated or even to make things more complicated, Jawaharlal Nehru, our first prime minister, took the sort of uh, individual decision, you could call it an ad hoc decision, soon after the signing of the agreement, that India's borders with China, northern boundaries with China, would be shown as fixed and determined on the basis of uh, you know, what he felt had transpired in the Tibet agreement. He assumed that everything had been settled between India and China. and Therefore, our maps from 1954 onward began to show a fixed and determined northern boundary with China, not only in Ladakh, but also uh, in the eastern sector of the boundary, which is the so-called, uh, as the Chinese call it, the illegal, but not what India says, the McMahon line. Uh, which uh, really fixed the boundary, or at least drew the boundary between India and China, uh, between Arunachal Pradesh and the Tibet Autonomous Region. So that's really how the story unfolds. And I felt that to understand the present and to look to the future, you need to have a deeper understanding of the past.
0: Right. So, uh, Jeff, to you for a moment, the Pentagon's annual report just out, uh, I think just a few days ago, military and security developments involving the PRC, the People's Republic of China, refer to construction activities by China on this border. It said, despite ongoing diplomatic and military dialogue to reduce tensions, China has continued taking incremental and tactical actions to press its claims at the LAC, which is a line of actual control that, you know, that the border is referred to. It said that sometime in 2020, the PRC built a large 100 home civilian village inside disputed territory between Uh, the PRC's Tibet Autonomous Region and India's Arunachal Pradesh, which Indian Department has referred to in the eastern sector. Well, this has obviously raised eyebrows and hackles in India. India has said, yes, the Chinese are building, but no, they are not in Indian territory. And if they were, that that would be unacceptable. And meanwhile, both sides have certainly been building forces. And this border is sort of the rock, no pun pun intended, on which the relationship breaks. So what is your takeaway from this Pentagon report? What sense do you get about this territorial issue going forward?
1: Well, the Pentagon report told us, uh, frankly, a lot of what we already know. It outlined what happened during the border crisis. Um, It outlined how China is increasing its military capabilities, not just along the border, but frankly, in the naval arena in the Indian Ocean. And it is developing the capabilities to protect its warships uh, operating further abroad, including in the Indian Ocean. But the border dispute did capture a a lot of attention. And uh, one or two things that was of interest to people watching the border was first that the report noted China had installed a fiber optic network along the border in the middle of the crisis. Um, And second, the Pentagon report seemed to make a determination on the origin of the crisis. Uh, One thing people have speculated on is what prompted this in the first place. Really, the um, most—it's an unprecedented crisis in many ways because it's the first time there have been casualties from hostilities in over 40 years. So, what prompted this crisis in the first place? And the Pentagon seemed to take the position that. It was a a result of differing perceptions of the line of actual control, which we know have long existed, but it also explicitly pointed to Indian infrastructure construction near the LAC. And I've personally argued in the past that this was the most likely culprit. Uh, China has a history uh, of using coercive tactics along the LAC to signal displeasure with India. And frankly, China has built up a significant advantage along its side of the LAC in terms of infrastructure. And in recent years, India has been making a belated attempt to close that gap. And you know as early as 2013, 2014, we saw Chinese patrols making these incursions in, across the LAC in an attempt to uh, signal to India that you need to halt this new infrastructure, these new roads, they're provocative. We don't accept them. You're building them in territory we still may consider our own. And so they hope that they can sort of bully India into submission. And I suspect um, in 2020, when the crisis erupted in Ladakh, India had completed work on an important road that runs parallel to the LAC, was working on feeder roads uh, out even closer to the LAC, And it's believable that the Chinese thought they would make a move to coerce India, to send India a signal, to punish India. And, you know, India didn't respond the way that I think they hoped. And the situation, frankly, escalated after there was a loss of life at Gowon. And now the two sides are both sort of digging in and becoming increasingly entrenched. But the last thing I'll say on this matter is we've seen... um, Now, a a progressive trend of escalating tensions and hostilities at the LAC, which had been relatively peacefully managed since at least the early to mid-1990s, and what was once uh, you could at least rely on some degree of stability at the LAC, it's now become one of China's hottest territorial fault lines, and there's real risk for escalation or miscalculation with the type of behavior we're seeing at the border.
0: Absolutely. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Ambassador, China has apparently taken a little bit of Indian territory four times in the last nine years. The old salami slicing technique, it's called. Is India faced with, at some point, having to draw a line? What is the Indian security and foreign policy establishment's view of this?
2: Well, I think the Indian foreign uh, and security establishment's view is that India's frontiers need to be protected, safeguarded, and uh, transgressions of the sort that you see from the Chinese side uh, need to be uh, taken action against, prevented, and resisted. So that really is the approach of the Indian side. The protection of India's national integrity and sovereignty, as we say so many times in Parliament, is of uppermost concern. But to take up Jeff's point about the building of infrastructure from both sides and how this may have contributed to the escalation of tensions and the opening up of the dispute further, uh, I think over the last couple of years, especially since China began construction of the Belt and Road uh, in our region and the opening of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, there'd been numerous signals from Chinese from the Chinese side. They were not happy, of course, with India's uh, opposition uh, to the uh, building of the CPEC in our region across territory occupied by. Pakistan in Kashmir. That was one factor. The other thing was, of course, uh, that the the matter of trust, as they say, between the two countries has really been a disappearing factor between the two countries. Despite the informal summits and the reaching out from Prime Minister Modi's side to President Xi Jinping, uh, things did not result in a building of building up of better trust, mutual understanding, mutual respect, mutual sensitivity, as our foreign minister has said many times. So that was also the terrain of the relationship, just, you know, to talk about maps, the topography was so complicated and so turbulent. And then, of course, you had, you know, the relationship between the two sides had become extremely, what shall I say, fluid, uncertain, and... uh, you know, the activity from the Chinese side, the transgressions in Ladakh from 2013 onwards had begun to show to the Indian government and established security establishment that this line of actual control was uh, being kind of redefined from the Chinese side. Even if we don't have mutually agreed perceptions of the line of actual control, the line had held between the two countries for the last uh, 40, 45 years. There'd been minor transgressions from time to time. We took it up. Each side would take it up diplomatically, and then things would settle back into this kind of uh, uh, st- status quo, you can call it, which had not essentially been disturbed over over the last few decades. But that began to change from 2013. In many ways, I think this we could have seen this coming the fact that in pockets along the line of actual control in the Western sector I'm talking of, in Ladakh, the Chinese were beginning to push, push westward. And uh, this seemed uh, difficult to explain, given the fact that they had already taken most of the territory that they needed to safeguard the, the Aksachin Highway in 1962, That line of actual control, mind you, this has never been defined on a map. This has not been drawn on a map, unlike the one with Pakistan, which we call the line of control. This is, you know, a different terminology, the line of actual control. And we had never, uh, we sought to define this sometime in the early 2000s, but it hadn't, that exercise had not gone anywhere because of Chinese resistance. Because you see, um, the Karakoram Pass, and everybody should, I think, put that front and center here. West of the Karakoram Pass, you have territory that is occupied currently by Pakistan and which Pakistan and China have discussed and come to a conclusion of where the so-called boundary between China and Pakistan lies in the area. So China would refuse to discuss that territory, West of the Karakoram Pass. And India wanted, obviously, because our boundary, when you speak about the length of the boundary being 3,488 kilometers, it essentially begins. From you know the region of the Wakhan Corridor with Afghanistan, it's the Afghanistan-India-China trijunction, as we call it, and nothing to and Pakistan doesn't figure in that in that uh, visualization, let us say, of of the boundary. So China would refuse to discuss the territory west of Karakoram Pass. India wanted that, and China said we are not going to talk about you know delineation of the line of actual control and the exercise went nowhere. So that itself, you know, uh, introduced uh, an element of um, tension in the relationship. And then you see in from 2013 onwards, this heightened activity by China, building infrastructure coming into pockets they had not been before, uh, withdrawing for some time. And then you would see many of these transgressions happening again. And in Galwan, that's essentially what happened. The Chinese were pushing westward. The Indians resisted. And uh, the tragedy, of course, happened. Uh, I wish it had not because it has really um, upended uh, the relationship in so many ways. It's destroyed the structure of confidence building that existed and tension reduction that existed between uh, the security military establishments of the two sides. And you see how the military commanders have sought to discuss this. So many rounds of discussions have been held. Some degree of disengagement has happened in the Pangong So area and in Gogra, but in Hot Springs, you know, they're stuck. Discussions are going on and there are many more issues to be resolved. But the problems in the eastern sector and the Pentagon report refers to the construction of the village by China. Now this, I mean, people have talked to me about this and I can't really visualize how China could have built a village on the Indian side of the border and it having gone undetected since 2020 or whenever it was constructed. What, From my observations of the issue, On the Chinese side of the boundary, not on Indian territory, China has been improving infrastructure vastly in this area of Tibet, which borders Arunachal Pradesh. It's been going on for many, many years now. And um, many of these areas are now connected, very well connected to Lhasa. And China has been opening up this area, especially Nyingchi Prefecture, uh, where much of this uh, Xiaokang uh, villages, as they call it, have been constructed on the Chinese side, has been opened up for tourism. This is an area of Tibet which is very different from the barren, uh, arid plateau that most of the region is, as you know. This area is uh, very rich in flora, in fauna, in vegetation, in water. And uh, it really supports. I remember a Chinese telling me many years ago that the Chinese don't really stay in Tibet like Chinese civilians, stay for a long time because, you know, the conditions are so difficult. So this area, obviously, lower altitude area of Tibet, uh, well endowed in terms of resources, is being opened up for human settlement from the Chinese side, obviously bringing in tourism And this borders Arunachal Pradesh. And this village that I think the first village that came up on the radar was this uh, village in the area that we call Longju, uh, where, you know, the incident, the first uh, clash between India and China involving loss of life in August 1959 happened. So for the last six decades, there's been a dispute about Longju between uh, the two countries. China claims it's on their side of the McMahon line, we say it's on our side of the McMahon line, and the uh, line of actual control there has been difficult to resolve. So China has essentially been in occupation of the area since, you know, 1959, and uh, India claims it as their territory, and which is why the reports say that the Chinese have built a village in Indian Territory. There's been another report, I believe, uh, but I, I really don't know. We, we don't have many details of it. But the Chinese are building uh, a series of these uh, Xiaokang villages uh, to promote the development of uh, on what they say is their side of the boundary. So this is really what has occasioned this kind of uh, storm uh, in the media about China having built a village but i believe the army spokesman and the government spokespersons have said that uh, there is no uh, evidence of any uh, new uh, construction uh, and in terms of these settlements on the indian side of the line of actual control in arunachal pradesh but what this points to nirmal is that just as the lac in ladakh came alive over the last few years uh, there is no uh, reason for us uh, not to assume that the line of actual control in the eastern sector of the boundary, which really involves the big territorial claim that China has on Arunachal Pradesh, will not come alive in the, in the months to come. I think uh, given the current situation in India-China relations, uh, you know, I am very pessimistic about outcomes, uh, given the fact of the lack of trust and mutual sensitivity between the two countries again, which points to, you know, the early years of the dispute and how everything, uh, you know, the contours really took shape. Those contours haven't really changed.
0: Jeff, do you share that pessimism? What is the view from where you sit?
1: Uh, Yes, I do share the pessimism. And I think uh, Ambassador Rao was correct to point out that what's happening at the border is also emerging in the context of the broader bilateral relationship, which has also been souring for other reasons. And it's frankly become a vicious cycle, a feedback loop where other aspects of the relationship are going poorly and things at the border are going poorly and they're feeding back into one another. Um, and I think the Indian, this Indian government um, uh, has made clear on several occasions that this we cannot return to business as usual so long as the border dispute remains uh, open and and uh, Chinese forces remain forward deployed at these positions. Essentially, until we return to uh, the pre-early 2020 status quo, uh, we cannot simply pretend as if nothing has happened at the border and we're going to continue to trade and cooperate at multilateral forums the way we were Uh, two or three years ago even. Uh, I think the Indian government has been quite strong in sending that signal. Um, And I think the Chinese government is frankly in a position where its appetite for risk has grown significantly in recent years. And, And its appetite for hostility, particularly with its neighbors, has grown considerably in recent years. We've seen that with Taiwan, with Japan, in the South China Sea with multiple countries, with the U.S., and frankly, very much so with India. Uh, It's been a very noticeable shift. that The priority that China used to place on maintaining stable relations, um, that's now been overtaken by other priorities, other more nationalist priorities. I mean, it's building new villages in Bhutan. Um, All along its territorial fault lines, it's behavior has become more provocative, and it seems willing to live with the consequences of, of substantially diminished ties with its neighbors, it also seems to be precipitating the one thing it says it doesn't want, which is India moving closer to the United States, Japan moving closer to the United States, Australia, and all the other Indo-Pacific democracies um enhancing strategic cooperation at forums like the Quad because they have shared concerns about China's rise. I mean, it must be quite obvious to policymakers in Beijing that they are provoking this type of balancing behavior, and yet they seem unconcerned with the consequences. Uh, more, uh, greater priority with showing your strength and playing to a national domestic audience and displaying your bravado and wolf warrior diplomacy uh, than sort of playing this careful balancing act uh, with its neighbors as it had done before.
0: Right, Jeff, I'm glad you mentioned the Quad. I was going to get to a last quick question for the ambassador. Ambassador, now in the broader geopolitical picture, China has always called Pakistan, it's always a friend. India is now drifting closer to the U.S., somewhat closer to the U.S., and what the U.S. calls like-minded allies. You know, Australia and Japan, we see the Quad gaining some traction, which is something China does not like. If there were to be a clash, say, bigger than Galwan, a border war perhaps, more like Kargil, in ninety nine, for instance, would India's friends, so to speak, be able to put any meaningful pressure on China? I suppose what I'm getting at is, is this destined to remain a bilateral, a dangerous bilateral irritant that could suck both countries into wider conflict and they would be going at it alone?
2: Well, to answer your question, Nirmal, I think uh, yes and no. Uh, in one sense, the relationship between India and the United States has grown so much closer. And especially post-Galwan, you know, the, the love that dare not speak its name is no longer, it's, the situation is no longer like that. India is much more open and uh, less unequivocal about its uh, approach to the Quad, its uh, relations with uh, countries like the United States, particularly. And you saw uh, in the wake of the situation in Galwan, there was support. Uh, material support also from the United States in bolstering India's position along the line of actual control, whether it was in the strategic airlift, whether it's it was in, in sharing of intelligence and information. So that kind of interlocking has taken place. And India, uh, the security and military establishment in India and the U.S. military and security establishment works much Uh, more closely together than than ever before. And India's own defense relationship, as you know, with the United States has grown uh, substantially and phenomenally in the last decade. So that kind of um, interoperability exists, at least it exists. Uh, We don't know how it will uh, unravel or uh, express itself during a situation of real close uh, confrontation and conflict between India and China. I think the approach of the Indian government, I'm not privy, of course, to the discussions within uh, the government, but my reading is, based on my own experience, that India will try to contain this conflict with China. India is not does not desire an escalation of conflict with China. It wants to discuss this problem. It wants a reversion to the status quo. But it's been made very clear that it will defend its territorial integrity and sovereignty and whatever it takes to do that. And that's where relations with uh, like-minded, as you said, partners, I wouldn't say allies because I don't believe the word alliance really is Currency in today's geopolitical context, you have partnerships, you have uh, uh, countries building very, very close relations. So you have to perhaps redefine that word in many ways. But the Quad is here to stay, in my view. And it's not a security alliance, but it enables, it provides the framework, it provides the, it enables, In it's an enabler in many ways to talk about and to structure much closer relationships between these countries, not only in defense, not only in military, in the military sphere, but it, when it comes to technology, which is a key factor. Technology is, you know, a, a geopolitical factor today in, in, in the world as we
0: see it. Absolutely, absolutely. And unfortunately, as you said, as Jeff also remarked, things have changed and there's not much Uh, Not that much goodwill on either side. Well, Ambassador Nirpama Rao, Jeff Smith, thank you. That was a fascinating discussion. It's been great having you both on Asian Insider. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirman Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month.